I invite you this morning to turn with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3. We have been working our way through this beautiful and confronting letter. We've gotten up to verses 3, verse 10 through 14. That will be our text for this morning. But we'll read the verses 1 through 14 together as background. Galatians chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, Now we get to our text. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if there is one thing that you could say about the culture in which we live, it is that it is hostile to the Christian faith. It is increasingly hostile to God. It is increasingly hostile to His Word. It is increasingly hostile to those who believe. Recently that became obvious again in the saga surrounding the Essendon Football Club. He may have read about this in the news. Andrew Thornburn Thornburn was a Christian businessman who was appointed in October 2022 
as the CEO of the Essendon Football Club at Melbourne. As it turns out, he was also a member of a conservative Anglican church called City on a Hill. And he, he had at some point served in this church as well. Now, that church had a conservative Christian perspective on issues such as homosexuality and abortion. When the club discovered this, they forced him to choose, and he chose to give up his position at the football club. In fact, he was CEO for only, I believe it was 30 hours before he resigned. Now, other examples of intolerance could be mentioned. And and generally, our culture is happy to have a little bit of religion if it makes people better citizens. A little bit of religion is okay. But when they encounter the Word of God and what it actually says about them and about us, then they reject it. They hate God and they hate His Word. Now, sometimes Christians can get worried about these kinds of issues you got people who, who hate God and hate His words and, and they, they get into positions of power and they begin to legislate and it can worry us. But we should not treat these as if they are the biggest problem facing Christians today. After all, Scripture itself is not concerned with what culture says about it. Scripture itself interacts with culture, but certainly does not let culture determine it in any way. In fact, culture has always been hostile to the true faith. That was so in the past when the Apostle Paul preached the gospel. It is still true today. Cultures come, cultures go, but the Word of God abides forever. The problem, therefore, is not What do unbelievers think about Scripture? The problem is, what do Christians think about Scripture? How do we understand it? How do we react to the absolute statements that it makes about us? Are we we willing to accept what Scripture says about us? Or are we also happy to have just a little bit of religion, but no more than that? Scripture doesn't let you do that. It is absolute and uncompromising in its pronouncements. It says that all those who rely on works of the law are under a curse. In other words, if you have a little bit of grace and a little bit of good works, you're just as certainly under God's curse as if you had no faith at all. In other words, a half-hearted, semi-committed faith will not save you. It cannot save you. But a solution to that is not to try harder. Instead, it is to turn to Christ. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. You cannot escape this curse by what you do. You can only escape this curse by what Christ has done. And with that, we we start to look at our text, and our text begins in verse 10 by saying, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Now, for the purposes of review, what law is this? The law is basically everything that God has commanded his people to do. 
And the basic form of that comes in the Ten Commandments, which we, we heard already this morning. So the Ten Commandments are the, are the universal moral principles. And in the case of Israel, they were expressed specifically in civil laws, so laws that affected society, and ceremonial laws, laws that affected their worship. But the, the basic principles in all of these laws can be um, drawn back, can be traced back to the Ten Commandments. Now, if a man who was not Jewish in those days wanted to convert to the Jewish religion, one of the first things that had to happen was that he was circumcised. And in undergoing circumcision, he was placed under the law. He was placing himself under the law. Paul reflects on that later on in Galatians 5 verse 3. He makes that connection when he says, I testify to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So the problem in Galatia, the uh, target audience for, for this letter, was that there were Jewish Christians who were teaching that Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians, needed to do this as well. So these people were called Judaizers, and they were essentially saying to these new converts to Christianity, you have to be circumcised. In other words, if you want to become a Christian, first you need to become Jewish. First you need to place yourself under the law. You need to rely on works of the law, beginning with circumcision, in order to be right with God. And they, they were not ignoring Christ. They would have acknowledged him as, 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 in many ways, as an exemplary Jew. But they said, if you want to be saved, you need to be circumcised. So you can imagine how... Absolute, this is when Paul says to, to these people, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And it doesn't even make sense to us because we would say, we would think to ourselves, well, all who rely on works of the law must still have half a chance, right? It's, it's, it's the people that don't pay any attention to the law at all. Those are the ones that you need to, need to be worried about. Those are the ones that are under the curse. But the people who rely on works of the law... Are they also under a curse? And Scripture says yes. It says in Psalm 143, verse 2, that no one is righteous before God. Romans 3, verse 10, Paul writes, no one is righteous, not one. And he's quoting from Psalm 14 there. In Galatians 3, verse 10, he says, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Rely in what sense? Rely in the sense that it improves your standing with God. The reason why you cannot rely on works of the law is because no one is able to do them perfectly. Cursed be everyone who does not do all things written in the book of the law. No one has abided by all things written in the book of the law. Therefore, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. There are no exceptions. Now, sin has made us blind to this. Our human tendency is to, to think that we're good people in general who sometimes make bad choices, right? If we, if we consider ourselves, that's often how we feel about ourselves. Good people who sometimes make bad choices, but not sinners in the sense that the Bible tells us. But we, of all people, are the most likely the least likely to have an accurate read on ourselves. 
Think, for example, about what would happen if you ask your, your if you married your spouse or, or maybe even your friends to, to um, um, if you ask them what your greatest sins are. Imagine if you were to ask them and they actually answer you honestly. You're probably going to feel defensive. They would probably mention things that we'd never even considered. Or maybe we had considered them, but we thought, well, it's not that bad. So, so right there, we start to feel defensive. And think about this. Even our best friends, even our spouses do not have an accurate read on us because they cannot see our hearts. That's how good we are at hiding our sins. That's why we need Scripture to tell us how things really are because Scripture is objective. Scripture is infallible. Scripture is inspired. Scripture is outside of ourselves. And we need this scripture which is outside of ourselves to tell us the truth about what is inside of ourselves. And that scripture tells us that all who are under the works of the law, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse without exceptions. So what is a curse? A curse is God's judgment over sin. Sin is to break the law, God's Curse is his pronouncement of judgment over that. And since God is the source of all that is good in life, God's curse means that over time, all that is good is taken away from you. Maybe not right away. Maybe not right away. And often the Psalms express frustrations at how, how people who, who appear to be so wicked can still look as if they are living under the blessing of God. But actually, they're under God's curse, and at some point, he will take that all away from them. And if this is difficult for us to accept, that that God curses people, it is because we've never understood the gravity of sin. And we should have understood, because death is the penalty for sin. Everybody dies eventually. I will die eventually. You will die eventually. We all know that we will die. Even unbelievers know that. They ignore that, but... They know it's true. Already in Genesis, God told Adam and Eve, if they disobeyed him, they would die. In Ezekiel 18 verse 4, God says, the soul who sins will die. Romans 6 verse 23, the wages of sin is death. We cannot say that we did not know. And we cannot keep the law of God because God demands perfection. Matthew 5 verse 48, Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. James 2 verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. The law is like a chain. If you break one link, you've broken the whole chain. And it doesn't matter whether the link is the first link or the last link. If this chain is holding two things together, you break a link, you've broken the whole chain. A chain can be fixed again, but... One sin makes us guilty of transgressing the whole law. And something that is fixed is no longer perfect. That's bad news for sinners. In the words of the Catechism, the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment must be absolutely perfect in complete agreement with the law of God. Whereas even our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. And Isaiah speaks about that in in. 
Isaiah 64, verse 6, he says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no escape. Good intentions are not enough. Deeds count, and deeds only. Often when we apologize to each other, and you, you would all know this because we have all done this. We apologize to each other. We promise to do better in the future. But saying something is not the same thing as doing it. Isn't that right? And God demands perfection in deeds. The law does not care about your apologies. The law is about deeds. The demand never changes. It never lets up. It is never relaxed. And the law itself does not help us to do any of the things that it commands. It cannot change our behavior. The letter kills in the sense that it can only convict us of sin, but it does not give us the power to become better people. It's as if someone is on the side of the highway. You do maybe from time to time see this. Someone is on the side of the highway. They've run out of fuel. Well, the law is like a map. A map is very important to to tell you where to go. But if you go to this uh, man on the side of the highway and you give him a map, you've told him where to go, but you have not actually helped him to get there. The map itself does not enable his car to start driving again. And in the same way, the law will tell us where to go. And we need that. But the law does not make us do these things. And you know, many people say, well, we don't need the map. If we're driving along the same road as everyone else, we will end up at the same destination. One of the interesting things about living in a post-Christian society is that a lot of people still act in a way that appears to be quite Christian, even if they have no faith at all. You know this too. There are a lot of kind, decent people out there. Sometimes people that even put believers to shame with the integrity of their lives. But these people think as long as they live a good life, they don't need the law to tell them what to do. Consider, though, how rebellious that reasoning actually is. Because all you've done is replace one law with another. You've replaced the law of God with the law of your own making. It is irrelevant whether that law on its surface appears to be the same thing as the law of God. The very fact that you reason in this way is a profound act of rebellion against your maker. Your starting point in that case is not God who gave you life. It is not the law of God which tells you how to live your life. It is not repentance to God for rejecting his demand on your life. Instead, you are autonomous. And that literally means that you have become a law unto yourself. That's what the word means, autonomous. A law unto yourself. So already from the very beginning, God is not honored as the law giver. And that is a terrible sin. God is the king over all the earth. Psalm 47 verse 7. God is the king. And here are people who reject his law. We are not the ones who decide what the law is. God does. And in the second half of our text, Paul writes, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now, he is quoting here from Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Let's turn there for a moment. We're going to turn back to Galatians 3, so don't lose your spot, but let's go to Deuteronomy 27. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. Now, 27 to 30 is, is a unity of um, uh, these chapters. They belong together. We can't, we can't read all three of them, of course. But we can look at some highlights. So chapter 27. Um, uh, in chapter 27, the people of God are commanded to perform a solemn ceremony when, they're ent- when they enter the promised land. They're going to go to the promised land. They need to go to a a place in the middle of the promised land, near the middle, where there are two mountains. The one is Mount Gerizim. The other is Mount Ebal. One half of the tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim for the blessings, and the other half will stand on Mount Ebal for the curses. So in this case, they're not just listening, but they're actually physically participating in an affirmation of the law. And then the Levites will pronounce the curses, and if you read um, the curses from Mount Ebal, starting from verse 9 onwards there, then you see that they roughly parallel the Ten Commandments. And at the end of chapter 27, so verse 26, they conclude by saying the words that Paul quotes. Curse be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And then in chapter 28, he talks about... Um, um, the Lord, through Moses, tells them about the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience. So in verse 28, verse 15, he says, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then we get a list of curses that follow. And then in Deuteronomy 28, verse 45, he says, All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you till you are destroyed, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. And then I'm going to read the verses 58 to 68 to... um, Give us an idea of, of what, what does it look like when you're cursed. 28 verse, verse 58. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses, grievous and lasting, and he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And do you see in verse 62 there the echo of the promise from Genesis 12? And uh, 15, that God said um, to Abram, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of heaven. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left for you in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, 
So the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening, and at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. So these are, are dreadful things to contemplate. And this was exactly what happened to the Israelites. They went into the promised land. They disobeyed God. They did not live according to what God commanded them. And the Lord did finally bring another nation against them multiple times, and eventually the nation was destroyed. But here is the point. These words are not just part of the founding documents, so to speak, of of the Israelites in those days. It did have a national application to them, but the deeper truth is that the essence of this curse affects all people. The curse has corrosive effects among all human beings who disobey God's law. God's wrath over disobedience is not just confined to one nation that disobeys him. The curse of the law ultimately applies to all. Just like becoming a child of Abraham applies to Gentiles as well, not just to Jews. Now, going back to to Galatians here, in verse 11 of our text, you might look at that. He says, now it is evident that no one is is justified before God by the law. And you might say, well... Well, hold on. Did not the law have a built-in mechanism for restitution through animal sacrifices, right? If you sinned, you could offer an animal sacrifice that was part of what the law prescribed to take those sins away. So how, how can he say in verse 11 that no one is justified before God by the law? What, what, what would you say to that? You could answer, well, the law does provide a means for being righteous in the eyes of God. These people could offer animal sacrifices. They could ask God for forgiveness. The priest would make atonement. Their sins would be forgiven. But here's the point. The animal sacrifices itself actually did not take away sins. God is the one who forgives. That is true forgiveness. But he did not forgive purely on the basis of those sacrifices. So, so the forgiveness was real, and that's why Psalm 32, which we sang last week, blessed is a man whose trespass is forgiven, and so on, that is an Old Testament psalm. That forgiveness is real, that joy is real, but the forgiveness is not on the basis of those sacrifices. It was on account of the Christ who was to come. And the letter to the Hebrews is very clear about that. It says in Hebrews 10, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. 
Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible. You hear that? You hear what he said? Did you hear? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And in Romans 3, verse 25, Paul writes that in his divine forbearance, God had passed over former sins. So all of these animal sacrifices were never meant as a permanent solution to sin. They were meant to point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one who fulfilled all of the requirements of the law in his perfect life. The one who took away all of the sins of his people in his atoning death. In Romans 10 verse 4, Paul writes that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now that Christ has come, forgiveness is only found in him. The law can only condemn. No one will ever be truly justified by the law because the law was never meant for that purpose. And to go back to the law now means to reject Christ. It is sin to even try. That's his point in verses 11 and 12. Law and faith exclude each other. He says, a righteous shall live by faith. So, when verse 12 says, the one who does them shall live by them, he is not contradicting what he said in verse 11, where it says that the righteous shall live by faith. If the purpose of the law was to justify, then it would contradict faith then there would be two ways of salvation. One way by the law and one way through faith. But that's not the case. There's only ever been one way of salvation which all of the scriptures testify to, which is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Whether he was a Christ to come in the Old Testament or the Christ who has already come in the New Testament. Paul writes, the righteous shall live by faith, verse 11. And we, we, um, you might recognize that as a quote from Habakkuk 2, verse 4, which we studied, I think it was half a year ago or so. And if you remember, what Habakkuk meant was really a kind of a faithfulness. A faithfulness that, that comes out of believing in God's promises. So there are people who say, well, Paul is misquoting Habakkuk here. He's not. That kind of faithfulness can only come out of a deep-seated faith in God. And Paul has taken that idea. He has sharpened it. He said the righteous live only by faith. Habakkuk was writing to people who wanted to know, how are we supposed to live in a time like this one? You know, people think our time is bad. Well, so was his. How are you supposed to live? And he the answer he got was by faith. In other words, your whole life is motivated by faith. Every perspective that you have is shaped by faith. And Paul is saying that faith is what saves you. Not, not in, the, in the sense of the things that you do, but you're saved through Christ. Faith in Christ. The Christ underlines it all. Faith in the God who forgives out of his grace. And grace, by definition, will always exclude works. That makes sense, right? As soon as you... As soon as you involve works, then it stops being grace. Romans 4 verse 4, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but at his due. If you're going to be saved by works, even a little bit, then it stops being grace. 
And the whole point of what we're saying is, if you are not saved by grace, you are not saved at all. Full stop. That's why in verse 5 of that chapter, Romans 4, he goes on to say, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The righteousness is ours through faith in Christ. You can only escape the curse by what Christ has done. Do you remember what we read about God's curse earlier? How, how um, drastic that was? And, and Paul says here that Christ took that curse on himself. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What an incredible thing to say. He actually became a curse for us. The root of that word redeemed implies this image of a slave auction. In ancient times, you could actually buy a slave. We still have slaves nowadays. We don't own them personally anymore, but there are many people in um, foreign countries who are, who are slaves and sometimes even closer to home, often involved in in manufacturing as well. In ancient times, you could buy one of these people. The highest bidder would win the auction. Christ has paid the highest possible price for us, his own blood. Every story, every type in the Bible points to him. Every story of deliverance points to him. Every sacrifice points to him. Jesus fulfilled all of the scriptures. So God intended for the crucifixion to be the fulfillment of the law. God intended it that way from the beginning. The whole trajectory of the Bible is, is about this. In Revelations 13 verse 8, last book of the Bible, Jesus is referred to as a lamb who was slain. His, the redemption that he gives to us was planned from the beginning, the foundation of the world. Christ became a curse for us. He was cursed for our rebellion. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And yet, for our sake, he made him to, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that is how you escape the curse. Our rebellion, our sin is, was imputed to him all of his righteousness was imputed. That means credited to us. Not a fiction, not a metaphor, not an image, but a true, glorious reality. The only thing that you can hold on to in a world which has constant change. And that curse was on full display in the crucifixion. Towards the end of our passage, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy again, this time 21 verse 23. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so in those days, if a, if a man was, was put to death for a sin like murder, then his body was hung from a tree. The idea was that it, it represented the curse because he, his feet are no longer on the ground, no longer on the land, and the land was a place of God's promise, so his feet are off of the land, but he's not, he's not let's say, in heaven either. He's suspended, so to speak. So it's, a, it's an image of rejection. That's what that means. And, and Paul says, this is what happened to Christ. Curses everyone who was hung on a tree. Christ was hung on the cross. He was suspended. It was fulfilled in him. 
This is the greatest mystery of all. The only human being who was ever justified by his works. And he was crucified. He bore the full brunt of God's wrath. He did it for us. He bore God's curses for us. All of it on display in the cross for us. Everything that Paul writes about the law is still true today. As if it had been written yesterday. Nothing condemns us more than God's law. Nothing will ever be more critical of us than God's law. And by the way, there's a a practical application that we can draw out of this. And um, um, this did not originate with me, but it is is a very interesting way of, uh, of applying this. This idea that the law condemns us. Reflecting on that text can help us deal with criticism. It's hard for us to accept criticism from others. It's hard for us to be criticized, for example, by a friend or or someone who's close to us. But no matter what anyone says, no matter how harsh their criticism, it is never even a fraction of our true guilt. The, The true situation is much worse. So all criticism that we receive from others, even if it is unfair, in some way should remind us of our true guilt. And so it can make us humble. You might not agree with what other people say about you, and, and you know, maybe the criticism was misplaced. You might not agree with them, but you, do, you should agree with God's law. And to the degree that what they say matches God's law, we do need to hear this. In fact, the greatest criticism is still an underestimate, and that should make us humble when other people offer constructive criticism. That would be good for us, also as members of the free reform community. If we, if we were more kind and given criticism and more humble in receiving it. To take out maybe, even if, if you feel it was unfair, to take out the one or two elements of truth and to reflect on those and to, to think, you know what? What God's law says about me is even much worse. So if this little bit of criticism already, already affects me so deeply, what about the law of God? But at the same time, we should remember that the greatest criticism can never undo what God says about forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Christ was made a curse for me. And nothing will ever take away from that glorious reality. And that is also something that is true even if the world is against us. Even if everybody that we know is against us, Christ was made a curse for me. That will never change. Why did he do it? So that, says Paul in verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you want the blessing of Abraham? This is how you get it. Not through circumcision, but through faith in Christ. So the first purpose is that the blessing of Abraham would come through the Gentiles. The second is that, or might come to the Gentiles, sorry. The second is that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The Holy Spirit was promised to God's people in the covenant, the, old co- the new covenant. 
In Isaiah 44, verse 3, he says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. In Ezekiel 36, he looks into the future at God's people. He says, one day he will cleanse them. I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Is that not also represented to us in the waters of baptism? The cleansing that we receive through the Spirit. You will be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. So God promises righteousness to all those who turn to him in faith. He promises renewal and cleansing. The Holy Spirit will dwell in us and and make us new people. And those promises are what we need to hold on to. This morning we saw little Leah receive the sign and seal of baptism. Parents promise as father and mother to instruct their child in this doctrine. Stephen Alley made that promise before you as well. But you know what? It is hard to do this. It is difficult it's easy to teach children that they must be good. Behavior modification, you can, you can do that with a dog too. Behavior modification is not the hard part of parenting. But if we are teaching them a works righteousness, this is what you need to do in order to be accepted by God or maybe by us, the parents. If you teach them works righteousness, you're bringing them straight back under the curse again. You have placed your children under the curse, that curse that we read about. So how do you bring up your children? You bring them up on your knees. You do it in prayer. You bring them to Christ. So this is why we said at the beginning, the greatest challenge is not the culture around us. This is not your problem. Daniel Andrews is not your problem. The stuff happening over East is not your problem. Rules and regulations surrounding COVID is not your problem. This is not the real problem. Culture is not the problem. The real danger is that we lose the sense, the gravity, the weight, the import of what Scripture says about these things. But when we gain that, then we've understood the gospel and then it transforms us. Not... It doesn't just transform us, but it can transform our culture. Because we live in a culture that is under God's curse. The people who do not belong to God are under his curse. But we do not need to fear that curse anymore. And and Christians in the past have been people who, who were often noted for living without fear when their culture was degenerate, and people noticed that. If we live without fear of, of death, if we live without fear of, of, of all these things that other people fear. And if we are afraid, maybe it's because we have forgotten the biblical categories of blessing and curses. But all these things will pass. Our, our culture is under a curse. A curse is at work around us. This culture will pass just like all others did before it. Now we'll catch up eventually, even if we can mitigate the effects for a while. That's why we need to remember these words from our text. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. You cannot escape this curse by what you do. You can only escape it by what Christ has done. So turn to him and you will be saved.
Amen.